Thanks so much for joining us for the New Life Brisbane podcast. New Life Church is one family, many churches, and we exist to simply see more people more like Jesus by planting and leading thriving local churches. In a world that is dominated by narratives of fear, anxiety, and worry, what does it mean that joy is not dependent on outward circumstances, but on the inner state of one's heart? You've joined us in our series, Philippians, where we are exploring what Paul meant when he wrote to have joy in everything and the importance of living in unity among believers for the sake of the gospel. We pray that this message is a blessing. So excited to be here this morning, and uh, thank you so much for the warm welcome. I'm just going to move this. Thank you so much for bringing it up. Um, yeah, hey, this morning I got the absolute privilege of announcing to our New Life Kulangata family that, that this church plant would be happening, that, uh, that, that we would be seeing a church plant plant a church. And our, uh, our congregation celebrated their socks off. We were so excited uh, to recognize that our church is a church that not only can conceive a vision where we will see more people more like Jesus by planting and leading thriving local churches, but also we're the kind of church that has that vision and says, how do we make it happen? And so what we're excited about as a church uh, is the quite simple fact that, that what we're witnessing is the first of many significant steps where we will be a church by 2027 that is a renewing movement in the Uniting Church, but also through the Uniting Church to the rest of Australia. So, so excited, so excited to see how this church uh, leans in and partners with this because it is a significant moment in the life of new life. But as uh, as Alex said, my name is David Scambry. I'm a pastor from our New Life Kulangata campus. And today, uh, we will be looking at Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to go ahead and open them up to there. Um, as you do that, we're on week 7 out of 7. And I don't know if you remember when this series started. I don't know if they advertised from the beginning, but this was once meant to be a six-week series. But we have somehow managed to bring it to seven weeks. And the reason we've done that is because I don't know if you've read Philippians before, but good luck cramming all that into six weeks. It is a beautiful letter filled with uh, incredible subjects, incredible theology. And so I'm going to run through the shape of Philippians in just a moment. Uh, But before we do that, What I want to do is read how Paul goes ahead and concludes, lands this incredible letter that he wrote to the Philippians. Verse 10, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and in every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment. I have more than enough. 
I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Friends, have you ever had one of those contented moments? You know those moments where you just feel satisfied? I'll tell you what it makes me think back to. Do you remember those Coca-Cola adverts uh, a little while ago? They would, uh, you know, flip off the lid. They would, you'd hear the fizz. They would take a sip, and then it would go, for a way too long of an amount of time. And that sigh represented them being satisfied, that everything in life was all good. I wonder if you ever had a satisfied moment of your own. I wonder if you're having that moment right now. As we sit here, are we in a season of contentment? Having read this scripture, my hope for today is that through this scripture, what we might see is the secret that Paul seems to have found a secret of contentment that he believes would be a blessing to each and every one of us as we uncover it. My hope is that we might, like the Philippians, come to truly and to deeply believe that something of advancing the gospel is far more valuable to us than any circumstance that we are currently in. And finally, finally, that we as a church, New Life Brisbane, we might believe just just a little bit more just a little bit more, just a degree more, that our God, that our God truly cares and wants to see us satisfied and content. And then perhaps we could take a step into living like we believe it, just a bit more. Big game plan. How about we uh, we pray together? Holy God, I thank you that you are in this room. That holy God, you have accompanied and you have filled every Christian in this space and you, you don't depart, you don't leave, you don't forsake. That we can be confident as we gather in your holy name that you are amongst us, that you are with us, that you have a purpose and a plan to do what you do when you enter a space and that is bring goodness. So I just pray as, as your word flows over us, as God, what you have to say and what is good for us to hear, that you would emphasize by your spirit that and do away with what we shouldn't be saying and what we shouldn't be hearing. Spirit of God, I pray you would give us pause, that we would breathe you in, that holy God, we would remember that you are passionate about your people. And because of what Jesus did on that cross, we are your people and you love us. Be praised, be praised in our hearts, be praised in our lives. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray, amen. Amen. Let's dive in, verse 10. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Friends, this letter of the, uh, to the Philippian church, it's rich, it's beautiful, it's thick with theology and, and the implications, the expectations, and the experiences Christians should expect as we do life. But throughout every single section of it, Paul weaves in and out of it this topic of joy. 
this topic of joy. So what I'm going to do for a moment, and, and there'll be some graphic behind me that, um, good luck if she can keep up, um, that will be behind me to help make the point, but I'm hoping to walk through how the book of Philippians has weaved joy. He begins in chapter one with, by, by introducing the basics of joy. First, that it is something we have as a consequence of our circumstances. He starts with, and he introduces the first theme in Philippians and the first instance of joy by saying this, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Joy is something we experience as a consequence of something. But he goes on and caveats it at the end of that chapter by saying joy has a superpower. He introduces a new word that joy isn't just limited to our experiences, to our circumstances, but rather, even when the moment is long gone, we can still rejoice. We can still rejoice despite the circumstance, despite what we face. Paul, a prisoner in chains, able to feel immense joy. And that ain't a joyful situation. So having introduced the basics of joy as this positive truth we experience and keep returning to, he continues, Paul continues by saying, okay, this is the basics of joy, but what is the substance of our joy? What do we look to for our joy? And so Philippians chapter three, it does this stunningly. Philippians chapter three, uh, before I get there, actually, one quick thing. Philippians chapter two uh, is in there and it gives these beautiful examples of joy. First, Jesus, and I don't know if you know the life of Jesus, but he suffered. He suffered immensely. And it says throughout it, and if you read the Gospels, even Jesus says that he has a joy that we all want. And so that's our first example. And then, you know, perhaps everyone in the room who goes, hey, Jesus did it. What do we reply? Yeah, well, I'm not Jesus, right? And so Paul, Paul, knowing the Philippian church, would be thinking this. He writes two more examples, two friends of the Philippian church who also have suffered immensely for the Christian faith, but still uh, hold to this joy. So chapter three then goes and goes, okay, I believe you. I'm convinced joy is this thing we experience because of situations, but can experience also despite our circumstances. It's, it's powerful. So what do we find a joy in? The substance of our joy, Philippians chapter three teaches, is the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always, right? Rejoice in the Lord always. And here's this beautiful chapter where he articulates how there is nothing in this world, there is nothing else in this world except the love of God that is valuable to us. All of our good works, all of our good deeds, all of our big and great efforts fall short before the love of God. And so who do we rejoice in? Not my good works, not my stuff, not my successes, not my applause. No, I rejoice in the Lord. And so convinced of this, the practical minded of us, which isn't me, but the practical minded of us would then ask, but how do we do joy? And so the beginning chapter, the beginning half of chapter four, he answers it in part. He says, yeah, well, what is the practice of joy? How do we do joy? And he says, well, for the first half is, how do we find joy amidst the inner chaos, the inner turmoil of our souls? And he gives this brilliant, brilliant teaching. Have you considered praying? Bringing it to him, trusting in the one whose peace is beyond all comprehension and understanding, but the, the, the one who guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, right? And he says, once you've prayed, here's what I want you to do. I want you to trust the Lord and then direct your thoughts to things that are noble, things that are true, things that are actually provoking of joy because they're a reality for us to experience. And so you may wonder, well, where do we go next? 
And so he concludes, he wraps out, he finishes this book of Philippians, this incredible narrative and teaching of the theology of joy. And he does it by saying, okay, I know how to have joy. Maybe, potentially, I'm learning to have joy when there's chaos in my inner person. But what about, what about when there's chaos in my outer reality, my outer experience? And this is what we want to look at today. Because this is what Paul teaches us we can have. So how does he open up this theology? Well, he opens up it up by telling us that he is rejoicing in the Lord as a, as a consequence of something the Philippian church had done. Read with me verse 10. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Something of the concern of the Philippian church showed, uh, led Paul sorry, to rejoice in the Lord. And I don't know about you, but I hear that and I go, well, yeah, money, right? Like these guys gave him a gift. Of course he was rejoicing. And very quickly in verse 11, he shuts down my sinful soul and says, I'm not saying this because I am in need. For I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstance. Notice how quickly Paul shuts down and explains what he's not rejoicing in. Notice how quickly he says, whoa, whoa, before you jump to conclusions, let me tell you, I'm not rejoicing um, uh, um, because, you know, they gave me something. No, no, no. I'm not saying this because I had a need and they met it. There's something else in this concern that sparked a joy in me. What is it? Well, Paul doesn't tell us straight away. Instead, he believes there's a deeper truth we need to have to understand the real cause of his joy. So what is it? Verse 11. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and in every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things or all this through him who gives me strength. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Friends, I want to point something out very quickly. We all know that last verse is probably one of the most misquoted scriptures in the entire Bible. And so I want to point out for anyone who mishears this scripture very quickly. Now, I don't gym. Uh, I canceled my gym membership because I was wasting money for about two years. But if I did gym and I lay down on the bench press, which, by the way, is like a, a well, you know what a bench press is. It's a bench press. And I loaded like 5,000 kilos on each side and I gripped it with all my strength and somehow it didn't break the bar. And I said, I can do all things through Christ Jesus who should. That bar wouldn't move. That bar wouldn't move. I don't suddenly grow giant muscles. Friends, if you don't study and you don't do your hard work, except for those very annoyingly gifted ones of us, but apart from them, if you don't study and you don't do your hard work, it, this isn't saying, well, through the power of Jesus, I will still get a HD in my next assignment. Right? It, it, this isn't saying that if, if I buy a lottery ticket and I just believe, then by the power of Jesus, I will be a millionaire next week. This isn't what it's saying. See, what Paul is teaching here is that despite the outer circumstance, win the lottery or more likely get struck by lightning on the way to buying a lottery ticket, or more likely than both of those things, you don't, nothing happens, you just wasted 10 bucks, right? It doesn't matter. Jesus says, Paul says that in Jesus we're okay. Whether the situation goes for us or against us, that's not his point. Whether you get the red Ferrari, whether you get the new Tesla, whether your life goes the way you envisioned, that's not his point. Something deeper is at work and able to sustain. And what Paul teaches is that he has discovered 
that God is able to pivot our hearts from dependence on stuff and circumstance to true liberty and contentment despite our outward experience. Now, let me tell you why this is huge. Let me tell you why this is a big deal. Do you know what this teaches us about the character and the heart of our God? that our God is at work pivoting our hearts away from slavery and dependence on broken and unsatisfying things and pivoting it to something that can satisfy. Let me tell you what that tells us about the character and the heart of our God towards each and every one of us. He cares. He cares about our experience. He cares about our lives. Friends, he cares about our emotions. He cares about how we're experiencing the seasons we're walking through. The God of the universe, the God of the universe that made galaxies and stars and planets, nebula, oceans teeming with life, the God of the universe looks at you and sees your circumstance and says, I'm interested. I want to help. I want to bless. I want to heal. He cares about it so deeply that, that, that he, he beckons us to draw so close, so close to him in trust, that even when all the spiritual force is working against him, and even when all of our culture, and even when our own internal turbulence cries out in a synchronized voice, you can't trust him, still we know we can, and we keep walking through these moments of pain. There's a brilliant uh, Puritan theologian of the 17th century. His name is John Flavel. And when he was writing on this subject, uh, he brings up, well, he says this quote, a contented Christian is a little emperor. He sits upon the throne of his own heart and commands all his outward comforts and enjoyments to wait upon him. Who doesn't want to be a little emperor? It sounds adorable. I would love to be one. (laughs) Anyway... (laughs) You know, who here can honestly say that they sit on the throne of their own hearts? I think almost all of us would freely admit that when we consider who's sitting on the throne of our hearts, on one side, there's this, there's this um, genuine desire to trust and go Christ's way. I would say almost everyone in the room would agree that that's a reality within their hearts. But then on the other side of this turbulent tug of war, pulling and tugging for the throne, there's something else our feelings, our fears that are so often driven by our experiences, our circumstances, our expectations met or unmet. And these two things are creating this massive chaos, this massive dust storm within the throne rooms of our heart that are leaving us entirely, entirely paralyzed. And what happens in this is that Paul is saying, hey, there is a liberty from this tug of war. Like Paul, we can find a reality where much or lack, gain or loss, plenty or in want, the throne of our hearts are stable and in the capable, loving hands of a strength giver. And what I wonder today is whether the giver of strength, let me read it again just so that we're all hearing and thinking the same way. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. What I wonder today is whether the giver of strength that Paul's referencing in that scripture is the same strength giver that we're looking to in our difficult moments. What I wonder today is when Paul says at the very foundation, at the very bottom, at the very core of of, of my strength, I look to Jesus. I wonder whether at the bottom, at the core, at the foundation, that's the one we're looking to when we feel we need something. Or perhaps for us, is it money? Is it promotion? 
is its status. Perhaps we think if we just have these things, we'll feel secure and then I can worship God. If you just give me these three things, then I'll have the freedom to come to you and do life with you. Is it achievement? Is it applause? Is it social media? Is it your wife? Is it your husband? Is it your kids? Is it your pleasure, your euphoria, your experiences? Because friends, I gotta say this genuinely. Like from a position of love, Tying our hope to these things is a surefire way to fail, to fall down. Each and every single one of these are bound to circumstance. And all of them, every single one of them, can tumble in an instant. None of them are safe handle holds for our contentment in life. And the thing is, no one here's jaw is on the floor. No one here is shocked. No one here is going, what? We know this stuff, right? And yet something deep within us is convinced that some of these things are the thing that we need to be okay. Why? And so to answer this, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna jump back. Maybe in this room you're like, wow, this room, what, this is what we all feel? Is it just this room? Are we just really sucky in this way? No, friends, there are eight billion people on this planet and eight billion people are wrestling with us. And perhaps you go, wow, this generation, this culture, this world, look what technology's done to us. No, friends, this isn't a new issue. This isn't a modern issue. This is an ancient issue. This is an issue that predates written history. You see, all the way back in Genesis chapter three, there is this story where a snake enters a garden and this snake represents a a, a creature rebelling against God and trying to inspire others to do the same. And he enters this garden and when he comes in, he says a line which teaches us that this is a deeply spiritual battle. Let me read this line. He says this, for God knows that when you eat from it, it being this act of rebellion, of rebellion, for God knows that when you, when you rebel, when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, you will be like God, knowing good and knowing evil. See how a part of the devil's argument for rebelling against God was that the promise that by rebelling, we would be better off, we would have more, we would be more satisfied, we'd be more okay, more content, more able. Friends, our dependence on things that cannot satisfy is a deeply, deeply spiritual battle and has been for all of history. And this battle, it's perpetuated in our culture, right? It it has been for as long as humans have gathered in groups. But I want to say this, it's especially bad in today's world. And it's bad by design. It's bad because the way the systems of our world are set up makes people a lot of money. That's the reality. It's bad because we're subject to and have contributed to a culture that intentionally breeds a dependence on things that can't satisfy. Uh, check out this quote, 1927. That's a while ago, in case you're wondering, right? And let's, let me give you some context. Right? World War I has ended. World War I was not a nice time to be alive in the places World War I was happening. You didn't have a lot. Scarcity was pretty bad. And this guy, Paul Mazur, he saw this opportunity to leverage the impact of the Industrial Revolution to create levels of wealth that, that up until this point were never known to human beings. And this is what he's quoted saying. We must shift America from a needs to a desires culture. People must be trained to desire, to want new things even before the old have entirely been consumed. We must shape a new mentality. Friends, we live in a culture that tells us if we don't have a certain repertoire of stuff, or if our lives don't match a certain ideal, then we are outcasts. We are less significant, we are less influential. And in this space, what we're feeling is a fear being, breed, uh, being bred within us. 
And it's a fear that has the power to keep us paralyzed and playing along even when we know something isn't quite right. And this is why when Jesus enters our world, when Jesus walks, God himself walks among humanity, he actually spends a chunk of text text, talking about contentment. Matthew chapter 6 is a stunning reflection on it. And in verse 24, this is what he says. No one, friends, no one. I know you think, no, 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 I can, but most people can't. No, 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 no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And what's wild in this section is that the God of the universe is paying attention to our peace and our satisfaction. He is intervening to teach us a better way of being. That's the love of our God. And he just reveals how how dangerous our view of stuff. And that word money is better translated to wealth. It's stuff, it's possessions, it's money. The the word is mammon. And the way he he uses that word, the way he says it, right? he actually references a Syrian deity of wealth. In other words, what he does in that moment is he gives personality to money, spiritual personality to, to, to wealth. And what he's saying by doing this, the God of the universe is describing money, that thing burning a hole in our pockets, that thing by which we will buy Maccas on the way home, that thing by which we pay our rent, pay for our food, buy our clothes, and so on and so forth. He is saying, not that we shouldn't use it, um, you know, throw it away, let's start a cult and hide in a mountain. What he's actually, that's not what I'm saying, Um, don't do that, bad move. Uh, What he's actually saying in this section is it's real, but don't be ignorant. Don't be unwise. There is a spiritual force to money. And it is competing with God for our hearts. There is a spiritual force to wealth. And it is competing with God for our hearts. So what we face when we talk about contentment, it isn't altogether just a conversation about circumstances and stuff. It's a reality that we are in a war for our very hearts. A war over what we allow to form us and a war over what we find ourselves worshipping. John Flavel, he goes on to say this, contentment is a pearl of great price. And whoever procures it at the expense of 10,000 desires makes a wise and happy purchase. So Jesus, our God, wants us to know the real joy of contentment. Because what we're facing right now is a spiritual adversary rivaling God for our affection, our attention, and ultimately the throne of our hearts. And what Paul does in this is he tells us that in the midst of this war for our souls, There is a victory bringer. There is a hope. One who is strong enough to weather every season and every circumstance, every lack, and also every gain, every victory, every win. He's teaching us that we have a God who wants us to find freedom from slavery to circumstance, freedom from slavery to stuff, and in its place be content and alive as we are. And this is what Paul needed us to know before he could go on to teach us why he did find joy in the Philippian church. Verse 14. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. And so with this all in mind, Paul starts to reveal why the Philippian generosity brought him genuine joy. And the way he explains it is by highlighting that this isn't the first time the Philippians have given to Paul. This is a habit. 
Friends, during COVID, I made a decision to, to learn how to do something I had wanted to do my whole life, right? I made the decision to learn how to skateboard. And um, I have scars to prove this. And, and so I, I thought, okay, no one's out and about. The roads are pretty smooth, and I'm not going to hit a bystander by accident. Let's do this, right? And, and so I went with a friend. Uh, we went out. We started learning to skateboard. And every time I did something and said, oh, I'm doing it. Oh, my goodness. He would go, two to make it true, two to make it true over and over and over again. In the end, I looked at him and I said, buddy, what on earth are you saying to to make it true? And he replied, yeah, you could do it once, it's a fluke. But if you do it twice, you really know how to do it. If you do it twice, you really know what you're doing. Two to make it true. And I think this is what um, um, Paul was saying with the Philippian church here. It, it, it's not just something they've done once. It, it reveals a character they have. And it stands out as unique in our world, even amongst the other churches. And what it revealed was the truth that God had been at work in the Philippian church, leading them on the journey to the victory that Paul had already tasted. And this is what brought Paul joy, that God was alive and at work in this church. The second half of verse 17 says this, what I desire is that more be credited to your account. Paul's rejoicing was steeped in his confidence that God was bringing to the Philippians a new liberty a new healing, a new joy, a pearl of great price, true contentment, a reward with more than 10,000 desires. This whole section was Paul's encouragement to these people to press on. It's worth it. Friends, do you believe today that it's worth it? There's a verse in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 3.18, and in the ESV it reads like this, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Do you believe that it is worth it today? Are we a people who want to be free from the bondage and, and the dependence on things and stuff? Are we a people who recognize that we are being deceived and the promises of circumstance and stuff can never actually live up to the promise they make? They will only ever let us down and leave us worse off for trusting them. Are we a people who recognize in this room today that Jesus is the one and the only name that can truly satisfy, a name that not only can satisfy, but desires to satisfy our souls in this room? And not just on this philosophical, ideological uh, mindset, but I mean the living individuals in this room, you and me, in our seasons of life, in our situations, God, knowing who you are, what you've done, and how you live, and knowing me and who I am, what I've done and how I live, he considers it worth it to liberate me, to bring healing, and to bring freedom. This is our truth today. So in what way can we begin to resist the hold of consumerism? You know, this sermon, it's not even me saying, hey, flip from bad to good, broken to whole. Right, go from not being satisfied to being fully satisfied. Nice and simple. Let's get going, right? This isn't my sermon. My sermon was hard to write. I spent t like hours, hours and hours laboring over the fact that I don't even know my perspective on this, that I would get up to write this message and go, what on earth? I don't, I don't trust God to be the primary source of my contentment 90% of the time? You know, I get the theology. I get the theology. Boy, do I get that. My God loves me. 
I mean, he loved me enough to give his life and suffer for me because he wanted relationship with me and for me to find freedom. Oh, I believe it theologically. And he is more richly, uh, more abundantly able to provide for me than anything else. I get that theology. But there's a big gap from here to here, right? We all know that. We all know that. You see, this isn't an invitation to go from not getting it to getting it. It's an invitation to go one degree at a time. I don't know if you know this, but if you asked me to turn a degree, I'm not even sure if you'd notice if I'd moved. I'm not even sure if I know how to only move a degree. It's not a big step. It's not a big turn. And yet, this is the speed with which we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So in what way can we begin resisting the hold of consumerism today? The power of the fear of missing out, the belief in magic thinking, you know, that idea that if I just get one more promotion, if I just have that one more child, if I just get this one final improvement, then finally my hands will lay hold onto that joy that will satisfy me and never fail again. If only. Are we willing to progress one degree today towards the liberty and the healing of contentment? Will we wage war again for the throne of our hearts? I wonder in what ways we can come before God honestly in this moment right now. I wonder in what ways we can enter the throne room of God in our own spirits as I'm speaking and invite him to begin to lead us to believe that he is a sufficient strengthener that he is a friend, that he is a profound cause for our rejoicing. Because it's when we believe in this that we begin to move, that we can begin to heal. My friends, do you believe it today? And the real good news is that this contentment isn't just imagining that we're okay when we're not. The Bible promises that God won't let us go without. And we read before in Matthew 6, uh, 24, where Jesus teaches us that wealth is a spiritual force contesting God for our very hearts. You know, as I said, that's just one part of a massive scope of text on this. And the very next verse, he actually continues. He says this, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food? and body more than clothes. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow, they do not reap, they do not store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they are to God? Can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? And why, why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They, they do not labor, they do not spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field which is here today and is tomorrow thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans, that is, those who don't know God as Father, those who are not Christian, they run after all these things. And your heavenly Father, your heavenly Father knows that you need them. So seek first his kingdom, seek first his righteousness, and all of these things will be given to you also. 
What is this? That the God of the universe is in our corner, has our back, knows our needs, steps in to make sure we don't lack. He heals our souls, delivers us to a place of contentment, even when the world seems to be coming at us from every angle, and even when we seem to get uh, uh, seduced by power and victories. Somehow we have this supernatural ability in Jesus to be content and satisfied despite the circumstance. And his love for us is not just centered on, on, on our external experience. It's not just centered on our emotions, but holistically, this is the love of God. In Philippians 2, it says that he emptied himself, poured himself out, poured himself out became a human being, living amongst us, fellowshipping with us in our sufferings and in our pain and in our hurts and in our wounds. Until after three years of ministry, 33 years of life on earth as a human, he walked upon a cross, walked up to a cross and suffered immense persecution, immense suffering, immense pain and passed away, and even then his suffering didn't end, for even then he still had to pay the cost for our sin, a, a, a cost we will never quite know. This is the love that God has for us. That today we can trust he is intervening, he is interested, he does care, and we can find a liberty where we're okay in his hands. Would you join with me in prayer? Almighty God, I thank you that you are love that you are kind, that you are merciful. The God, you are not moving through this place, demanding, shifting your weight away, demanding your will be done and you better do it snappy and I have no interest in you, but you come with this promise, I am a father. And right now, my God, we can receive that promise. And perhaps in this room with all eyes closed and with all heads bowed, you, you, you haven't actually heard of this Jesus before. I mean, you may have heard information about him, but he's never breached your souls before. You've never been invited to just move one degree at a time. And so I'm just gonna say with all eyes closed, with all heads bowed, with nobody looking around aside from myself, I just wanna invite you right now, if you wanna get to know this Jesus for the first time, or perhaps you once knew him, but you walked away and you wish to return to his beautiful relationship. Just raise your hand so that I can see. Come on, come on, come on, thank you. Come on. Amazing. Lord, I thank you that you are moving in this room. I thank you that you are reaching out to the lost. You know how to save and call home your people, your children. God, I thank you, Father, that you are a king, that us, your, your children, can trust, that you provide more than, more than we could ever imagine or ask, that you set us free from dependence and circumstance and stuff, and in its place, just one degree at a time, you invite us to believe a bit more and step a bit further into a life entrusted to you. Be glorified in our hearts. Be celebrated in the way we live, Jesus. In your perfect and mighty and healing name, the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Hey, how about we stand and, we, and respond in worship? 
thanks again for listening to the New Life Podcast. If that stirred something within you or you'd like prayer, you can head to church.nu forward slash prayer or contact us through our Instagram or Facebook page. We pray that you have a great week. Be blessed.